Welcome to Beating Cancer Daily. Beating stage four cancer for 30 years still takes my breath away every time I say it. I'm Saren, founder of the Comedy Cures Foundation, and I hope you'll join me for just a few minutes daily for the next 365 days so we may laugh, learn, maybe cry a little as we live our best days beating cancer daily together. Missy Hall, my buddy comedian Missy Hall is back on beating cancer daily today. And if you could see my smile, because I know that I'm going to laugh and I know you will too, as we take Missy through her cancer survivorship and also life in the new normal. If you've listened to any of the Beating Cancer Daily episodes where we feature comedian Missy Hall, it's a mini series within the overall Beating Cancer Daily series. You know that she was diagnosed with cancer and that we've taken this journey with her. And I urge you to listen to all the episodes. And now for our new installment, Life Has Smacked Missy, in the face. <laughs> I can't wait to go through this because I went through the same thing. And I bet many of you have gone through this too. So Missy, we have to fill them in. Okay. All right. Just last week, my dear sweet husband had really his first medical emergency of his lifetime. Wait a minute. He's not allowed to have a medical emergency. You are the star of medical emergencies this year because of your cancer. What is he doing? Exactly. People were saying, what did you, were you tired of Missy getting all the attention? (laughs) That's what I was thinking. How dare he stop being the caregiver and start being the patient. Exactly. I am the family focal point at this. Yeah. (laughs) It was something else. Yes. And just so everybody knows he's fine. He's going to be fine, but he better be fine because you have to be the center of the family's health focus. Exactly. Not Jeremy. Like, can you please come back to my cancer now, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very uncomfortable. <laughs> so just to update you, if you haven't heard any of Missy's episodes, Jeremy is her husband and he's a comedian also, and they have a weekly Facebook live where they actually have a date on Facebook as two comedians. And they also really openly share about Missy's cancer situation. And just the fact that he wanted to be the star of healthcare now. I'm telling you, (laughs) I was like, I had one thing, one thing. (laughs) No. And do you know, I, ever since I had my cancer diagnosis, I realized that when Jeremy is relaying any kind of medical information, it's like playing a game of telephone. Remember that game? Like you whisper something in somebody's ear and then the next person hears something completely different. Yes. I, um, I realized with this, I definitely have to be present and or on the phone with every conversation Jeremy has with the doctor. And is that because you have to figure out how to use it in your act at a later date? 
I think that he has referred to the edema in my breast as emphysema (laughs) that purpose. (laughs) Oh, no. Yes. Yes. But Saren, the man was walking around the house, doubled over in pain. And we just thought he was constipated. He swore he was constipated. But he was on the couch shivering and covered in a blanket. Oh, I I was like, honey, I've had two surgeries, biopsies, radiation, medication, and I was never huddled up in a blanket shivering with chills on the couch. I don't think not being able to poop is the issue. But what do I know? Right. (laughs) I know he's going to talk to his doctor. He hung out that way a couple of days, drank some prune juice, felt better went to get examined at the doctor's office. And she said, I am like 99% sure you have diverticulitis. I want you to go in for a CAT scan and, but this will be treated with antibiotics, but I need the CAT scan to confirm it. She said, this can get to a point where it can abscess and you can have a perforation. She said, I see that, but those people are in much worse shape than you are. Jeremy has one glitch with the insurance company scheduling the cat scan he's i'm not gonna go i'm just not gonna go this is too hard now we've all been there that's what i mean have you surrendered to the insurance blockade and i that's what i told him i'm like honey i know this is new for you everybody with insurance who's ever had a medical issue and a test ordered will get the thing this hasn't been authorized blah 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 i was like you but you can't just decide that you are going to walk bent over for the rest of your life, waiting for your intestines to explode. Like you, you have to go through the system. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so frustrating. And for anyone that's going through that right now, where you're fighting with insurance to get your test or to get a surgery or to get radiation, I feel for you, it takes so much energy to deal with the insurance company. And I am relentless. I am like a maniac. But when you are sick, it is so hard. It is so hard to be your own advocate. It really is. And I was, and Jeremy had to deal with another thing on the phone with the insurance company today. And I was like, honey, imagine if you were like 80 years old and very ill right now and having to handle that. I'm like, this is, it's a hard thing. This is not unique to you or our insurance. It's not. This is when you hear people talking about the healthcare system in our country, which he hasn't really had to think about because he hasn't had much happen, right? I was like, this is a universal problem. Yeah. And But wait, I just want to say, I think about the battles that I've had to wage and all the emails and letters I've had to write. And English is my first language. I can't even imagine how people who don't have English as their first language are dealing with the system without interpreters because it is so hard. And we're in America, we have insurance Mm-hmm. But how these things are dealt with in other countries. I mean, I had a friend who was in another country where medicine was much more socialized. 
Okay. And he kept getting delayed and delayed on a surgery. And then finally, believe it or not, died from something else waiting for the first surgery. My word. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a universal problem. And I I don't know how with this level of unwellness that we have in the world, and we're not even bringing into it all the trauma and injuries that are happening from what's going on in other parts of the world. But the whole medical system worldwide is broken. And anyone that's in it, I empathize every ounce of it, but you have to pace yourself with your insurance battles. You can't let it get you sick. You have to get help. You have to delegate some of that fight and responsibility. Maybe you can dictate a letter to somebody so you don't have to sit there and type it. If you can get a buddy who's really good at handling bureaucracies and insurance and and problems with insurance and conserve your energy for the cancer fight, that's something that I did. I had to get help. I had too many bills and too many things that needed approvals when we didn't even have the internet the way it is now. So you had to really wait for snail mail letters and faxes. Like it was crazy time. So I really feel for you guys. I mean, you're just coming off all of this into survivorship. And now you had to pick up and help Jeremy. That's a lot on your plate. In a way, this is going to sound wonderful and terrible. I've always said that I would rather be sick than see him sick. That's so beautiful. That means you're newly married and you still yeah. love your husband. <laughs> I, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and having to leave him in the hospital was heartbreaking. Like that, that got me because it wasn't, it was not a desperate enough situation where I would need to spend the night or anything like that. But it was so sad. Were you hospitalized or you did all your cancer no, treatment? All- outpatient. Wow. And that's the other thing is that while I would rather have been, I'm like, and I'm used to being a patient, like I can handle it. He was traumatized by his IV, like all of this stuff, like I, I can do all of that. But there was something nice about just being the anonymous partner to the care team. It Not was- wearing the bracelet. Not having the little bracelet was, on your wrist. It was really nice. Again, not. it was nice to be because it's the same hospital. Now, the cancer center is a different section of buildings at the same campus. But to be there as a person, I felt like a person again, as opposed to the lady with cancer. That's such an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. And yes, and it. It was kind of empowering. And then I got sad because I was like, oh, but this doesn't mean that it's I'm done. This just means now we both have an issue, which his and her. Yeah, (laughs) it was his and her surgeons. And it just but so it was a lot. Yeah. Um, And when he finally did go and get his CAT scan, we pushed through and got that. We come home, the doctor calls immediately and he has her on speakerphone and she's like, yes, do you remember when I told you about the abscess and the perforation? And he goes, yes, he goes, she goes, you have that. 
I need you to go to the emergency room right now. They're waiting for you. Wow. And Jeremy, I just, and this is something, I think an important thing too. The first thing he said was, is this going to affect how I eat later on in life? Completely bypassing what she said. And she goes, if you don't go to the emergency room, he's like, no, I just mean long-term. What am I going to be able to eat? And I'm looking at him like, what is the matter with you? But I realized he can't process the bad news. Yeah. He can't process it. I think everybody has a bit of post-traumatic stress when a family goes through a cancer diagnosis and all the treatments and now the aftermath with the lymphedema, there's just unresolved trauma. And I know he was trying to be so helpful and so brave for you. And a lot of times the spouse just doesn't get the mental support. You're absolutely right. Like, I think even though people have been so loving and kind to him, I think he's felt like he, he had to take all this information in and had to be so focused on me being fine that it never dawned on him that he wasn't going to always be fine and had to skip right past the emergency room to a meal plan. Um, Isn't this interesting? I always think about where illness strikes mm -hmm. and just think about it. He stomached it. It's true. He just stuffed that whole situation he stomached it it was not processed no Mm -hmm. it wasn't processed and he's never had any intestinal issues before it is diverticulitis he does have did have an abscess and a perforation and he agrees he goes let me finish up some stuff around here and then we'll go to the hospital and i said get in the car we're going to go to the hospital now And it was like, I drove, like normally he's driving me to the hospital. I drove him and he, I could feel him surrender, could feel him surrender. And we went back and they didn't, when they took one look at his CAT scan, the nurse says, oh, honey, you've got a hole in your intestines. You're not going anywhere. And then they started walking down the hall and she's like, wait a minute, didn't you have a wife with you? And Jeremy's, oh yeah. <laughs> and he went and he got me and from that point on but he was he had his first IV ever and he was hungry and they wouldn't let him eat and he's like why can't I eat I'm like honey you have a you have an abscess and a hole in your intestine like he he couldn't make it make sense in his brain it, it was There's really- also like a gut brain connection. Yes. And if the gut isn't working, it's probably the brain isn't going to be working properly. So that, I get point. that Jackie, who's our resident medical contributor to beating cancer daily. I mean, her episodes are so interesting. If you haven't heard many of Jackie's episodes, listen back but we talk about the gut and the brain all the time. And I just feel like it's all so connected, the emotional, the physical, the mental, 
the spiritual, if you don't process all aspects of this, it comes back and bites you in the butt. It It really does. does. It does. And it's funny, I've got to email Jackie because I have been channeling my inner Jackie (laughs) with this. I kept talking to him. The poor guy's in there. I'm like, listen, your body is responding to something. Pain is the body's message that something needs to be attended to. I was like, and I think now you'll finally begin to embrace with me the fact that we have to treat all the cells in our body in such a way that they can do their jobs. And he was like, I, he goes, I will do whatever it takes to not feel like this again. So he's being a good patient. (laughs) Oh no. Yes and no. Because what happened is the antibiotics worked quickly and the the pain stopped. Plus they had him on complete bowel rest. So within about 12 hours, he was only in mild pain. So then he's like, why can't I just do these antibiotics at home? I'm like, honey, it's four bags of antibiotics. Like they just, even as a liability, they're not going to send you home without, no. And they have to make sure like that something passes through and all of that. So he was like, then why can't I eat? Like he became like a badger. Like, can I just eat something? Can I eat something? Can I eat something? Can I have something to drink? And they're like total bowel rest. Um, Fortunately, I was just amused because if you are feeling very sick or in pain, you don't care if you're not eating or drinking. So I had the joy of knowing that his body was responding to the treatment yeah, and he was going to be okay, but boy, was he, he was hangry. He was hangry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so interesting when there's the reversal in the family. Yes. And the caregiver becomes the patient and the patient becomes the caregiver and how that new normal dynamic works out after something as serious as cancer, because I know that anything that happens to my husband, it's just not catastrophic. So my empathy level is less because I beat stage four cancer and I help people who are so ill through such disease. So my husband has this stuff happen and I'm just like, suck it up, buddy. (laughs) And it's it's funny that you say that because I I was telling Jeremy, I'm like, because while he was an inpatient, I still had to go to my appointments at the cancer center for my OT therapy for the issues that I'm having. And I would say, I was like, I just saw a lady with no hair and a walker going in for her treatment. And you're mad because they won't let you have a cracker. Oh, poor baby. Like, could it, <laughs> could it not dig at him a little bit? I'm like, I, it just, I was like, you're going to be okay. You yeah. are going to be okay. And he still might be facing surgery, which really bothers him. So he keeps talking a lot about not wanting surgery. And my heart hopes that he doesn't have to because he's scared of it. Of course, of course. But my, it's all, it almost feels like my mom brain is like, you will be fine. This right. is not one of life's biggies. 
That's so, so funny. You call it a mom brain and I call it stage four survivor brain. Yeah. It's yes. just this little voice in the head. And I so understand it, but you're still a comedian and you mm-hmm. still have to go on stage. You yeah. still have to write comedy. You still have to be funny. Yep. And now you're not only dealing with your OT for lymphedema and yes. your survivorship adjusting to the post-cancer drugs that you're going to be on for a while that create crazy side effects. Now your caregiver, plus you're a mom, plus your grandmother. Yeah. How are you still funny in the middle of this? Did you have to go on stage and I, leave them in the hospital? I And you and I have talked about faith and the way things happen the way they're supposed to. I had been lamenting the fact that I had a show that Saturday night that I was all excited about that got canceled, got postponed. They bumped it to January, but which meant that I wasn't working Saturday night. And it was Friday night that he was admitted to the hospital. I'd had Oh a my gosh. Day. So we're there and he goes, wow. He's the first thing he said is, wow, if it were tomorrow, you'd have to be leaving right now to go to your show. And it wasn't close. It was going to be like a two hour drive. And he said, he goes, I want you to, I would have made you go. I would have been fine for you to go. And we talked about it. And I said, two hours away when you're in the hospital feels far right? That feels really far. If something goes awry and I get a phone call, um, I was like, that would have been a tricky situation. And I feel so blessed that we did not have to make that decision. I knew Friday night, it would have been a no brainer. He, it was still an emergency. We didn't know if he was going to be going into emergency surgery by the, by Saturday afternoon, he was feeling better. We knew he was responding. He was okay. But I'm like, I don't, I would not have felt good driving two hours away, doing the show, and then coming back. I just want to explain because that's super common. Mm -hmm. You see comedians perform, particularly if you're not in a major city like New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles, where there's such a concentration of comedians. A lot of times comedians are driving hours to get to a venue and because they prefer to sleep in their own bed and it's cheaper for them to turn around and come home, they will drive hours to a gig. And so normally that's just what you do. And if there's another comic going to that same venue from your area, then you guys might drive together, share the expense and share the drive and the time. But a lot of times you guys are driving by yourself mm-hmm. and I can't even imagine with Jeremy that vulnerable. And I'm again, I feel so grateful. It was almost like God's okay. You're a little worked up right now. I'm going to take care of this for you. We're just going to cancel the show. So it's not <laughs> an issue because there were so many things. I mean, we have three dogs. I'd have to leave the hospital to come home, take care of blah, 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 so much. And I was so grateful to not have to have made the decision in either direction. And it just worked out. As we see, so many things do work out 
for the better, even when you get that first phone call, hey, we're not performing Saturday. And I had been offered another gig weeks before. All of those kinds of things. And if you're not familiar with how comedy works, there's no real security. So if you say, yes, I will do a gig on the 30th, and somebody else says, hey, can we have you on the 30th? You've said no to that person. But then if you don't, if your gig on the 30th gets canceled, in your mind, you're calculating your losses, right? Yeah. This- but I do want to explain yeah. also, you don't give up a gig because exactly. you can look unreliable or yes. you waited to get on that rotation or on that roster. So if you cause any kind of static, they just remember you as unreliable or not cooperative or or not prioritizing their club. So by canceling, you might never work at that club again, or it might take you months or a year to get back in the rotation. So I understand that's a huge decision that you would have had to make. And you made the joke that God made it for you. But yeah. just in terms of, because it's happened to us all before, I I remember being in, making me a little weepy, I remember being in a green room in New York City at the Manhattan Center. And that's a right. massive theater in New York City. I think it's shy of 2,000 people. Oh, like okay. Big, 1,600 big. people. And I had booked... Rick Younger to be a comedian. I just worked with him recently. Oh, did you? I love Rick. So Rick was booked and it was a a big event for healthcare workers. It was the healthcare workers union and we were doing a massive event for them. And Rick found out that his grandmother had passed away. Oh. And I said, Rick, you don't have to go on stage because we were in New York City. I had enough time to make a phone call Mm -hmm. to get another comedian just to run over to this massive theater. And he said, no, I'll do it. And I was like, are you sure? This is is really hard news. You're very close. And he said, no, I want to do it. These people deserve to laugh and they deserve to have a good time. And so he went on stage and he did it. And we actually took a selfie before it was really popular to do selfies because I wanted him to have this photograph of us in front of this huge auditorium laughing so that he always remembered his strength and his power as a comedian to impact the world, even when he had gone through such a loss And so I don't, I just don't think people think about when a comedian goes on stage that they could have just lost their grandmother or their husband could be in an ER or intensive care on watch. You know what I mean? It's just, people don't usually think of that. Yeah. It's a, it is a very strange thing. And I can remember the night that I went on stage after my biopsy. So I didn't know anything yet other than the radiologist said, this doesn't look good. I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't look good. She's like, don't you hate that phrase? Yes. Doesn't look good. And she said, and I love her for this, but I can see it clear as day. She's like, do me a favor. She's like, 
don't take the peek into your patient chart on the portal. She's like, because the results might go there first and I want to get to you first. Oh, that's really sweet. Was so, so sweet. And I loved it, but I had to go do a show that night and it was one woman show, two hours comedy and then warm up games and stuff. And I- How do you compartmentalize? Because I think that part of the reason why I was able to get through so many years of treatment and ultimately beat stage four cancer is because I have mastered the art of compartmentalization. And so I'm just curious, so we can just help maybe somebody who's really struggling. How do you compartmentalize and then go on stage and be funny? I think what happens is, especially in a job like comedy, and I'm sure if you have a job that's intense that you're fully focused on at the time, it might work the same way. But when I walk in and I've got my microphone and I see all of the people looking at me expectantly, I'm not really me anymore. I'm not the me that might be thirsty or have to use the bathroom or have a sore throat. I'm me who is here to serve them. And looking at, okay, that table is going to be interesting and I know I can play with them. And my brain and my heart go into sharing that energy because I look, and I don't know why this part always makes me teary, but sometimes you look out in the audience and you'll see somebody that got dressed up special for their night out. And it just, it gets me. Like you'll see a lady that obviously spent some extra time with her hair or, and you're just like, this is her night out. She doesn't get a sad, scared Missy. She gets a comedy night. And that always gets me out of myself and just in to that space. That's so special. I mean, it just shows what a big heart you have. And I remember when I used to take my daughter as a toddler to like fancy restaurants. And if she would have any kind of a temper tantrum that would be disruptive, that's exactly what I would say to her. This could be that person's only one night out and you don't have the right to ruin it for that table. And so if you're not prepared to be in this restaurant, then we need to go home right now. And if you can share the space with other people and be considerate of them, then we can stay. And that got her through the terrible twos so fast because I was willing to walk out of the restaurant. So it's funny that you use the same psychology on yourself, but you said something really cool at the beginning, which was, oh, I see that table. They look like they could be fun. I could play with them. Now you're letting us behind the curtain even more. So you survey the audience and you pick out who you think might be fun to play with. Yes. Especially if I'm doing a particularly long show, like there, I was going to, I knew I was the whole show for two hours with these people. So I knew I had to figure out 
That's a long time. That's a lot of me. So I knew that I was going to be bringing people in. So in any situation like that, I survey the room to see what I can find that's funny, not unkind, never unkind, funny, but like, it's we fun. call it crowd work just because the work. audience loves people contact me all the time at comedycures.org after they've heard the podcast. And they always say on our episodes that they love that they're learning all this behind the scenes stuff about being a comedian, being a comedy writer, using your comic perspective. And just in terms of what you're saying about not being unkind, that's the Comedy Cures brand in the sense that our mission is that we use humor to unify and build community and not to tear people down or be divisive. So Missy has been performing with us for decades and that's because that's her natural way. But I just want to tell you what you do in the audience. I do in the waiting room at hospitals. Yes. Yes. I, I do now too. Yes. You can't take it out of the comedian. I'm telling you, I look at people in that waiting room and I look at who is absolutely miserable, who's so isolated, who's in pain. And then just like I would crowd work in, in a comedy club or in a comedy care show, I go in and I just try to elevate that waiting room and then individual people and get people talking and sharing. Because I figure if I'm going to be there for an hour or two, I might as well treat it like a comedy cures program because those same people would leave that waiting room and come to a comedy club or a ballroom or a community center. So just give a free program while I'm there. Are you doing that? Yeah. There was one situation and please know that I'm not telling this story for you to be like, oh, Missy, you're so nice. I don't mean that I'll at all. I'll say it in advance. Missy yes. is such a nice person. Okay. I saw a couple and I found out that they were in their 90s. Oh, God bless them. They had been married for 73 years. I love them. Can I adopt them? Oh my gosh. So they were sitting on the other side of the waiting room and the gentleman's name got called and she got up with her walker and she was coming with him. And the nurse said, we can't bring you back. This is a sterile surgery area. And she's, oh no, that's okay. I'll just wait in the hall. And she was together and they're like, no, you can't come. And Sarah and I could see her getting shaky and she was beginning to fall apart. And her husband pulled out a handwritten note. Oh, this is going to make me cry. And he handed it to me. He's like, look, you go sit down and you just read these words over and over till I come out. And she just was beside herself. So I stood up and I'm like, would you like some company while he's back there? I would, I'll come sit with you. And her husband's like, thank you. So I kind of danced with her walker back and we sat down And I just started asking her questions about her life. And then other people in the waiting room started joining the conversation. That's the best. Yes. And it was, it was lovely. And the man came out. I was like, go away. We're having fun. (laughs) And then he just sat and we talked. It was, but her fear left and she wasn't the patient but her person 
was being taken back and they were just so lovely. But when other people in the waiting room started, I kind of, it felt like I broke the ice and made it okay for everybody to talk. And it was really lovely. That's how I did the first chemo comedy party. Is it? That, that's yeah. Is that's that how, how the Comedy Cares Foundation launched. Yeah. I just made a chemo comedy party, my first chemo treatment and invited everybody, broke down all that isolation. And when I saw how magnificent that interaction was that you were just describing in your waiting room, I went home and I just said, this has to be a nonprofit. This has to happen in more places than just where I am. So, oh, I have chills from that story. And here's the terrifying part. One of them drove home. I I know. I was thinking of that (laughs) and I was like, what? (laughs) Because I, and I asked, I was like, oh, did you drive? Did you drive here? Oh, yeah. And he seemed fine, but I, it, yeah. No, they, my in-laws are 89 and 90 and one of them surrendered the keys okay. and one of them still driving. And I just, I don't know. I told my daughter, I'm giving you permission now that you can take my keys at a certain age. Yes. I just think our reactions aren't as fast. Some of us can't see over the steering wheel. <laughs> you know I, mean? I, know. I was like, I'm like, and just the mobility alone. I'm like, how are you quickly grabbing a wheel? Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think there should be a charity that just helps the younger generation figure out how to stop the older generation from driving. And I get the independence. I 100% get it. I love like being free and going wherever I want, but- I was just thinking about after all that emotion, one of them getting behind the wheel and I'm like, oh my goodness. But that's kind of, but it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful story. I hope that my husband and I reach that ripe old age and I hope that he comes with me to my appointments. I mean, I just think it's sweet. Right now he doesn't, I just go do it myself. But I hope I get to that place where we get old enough that we can support each other that way. Yes. I, And it's funny because of such the age difference. And this is something I've been teasing him about lately. There's a 13-year gap between my husband and I'm on the upper She's end. She's a cougar, guys. I'm Just cougar. say it. <laughs> but I told him, I was like honey, you seem to be catching up with me age-wise. I'm just saying, like right now, I was like, I hadn't had any health problems at 43. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, Missy, I love you. And it just really is such a universal moment when the caregiver who's been helping through cancer treatment really just becomes the patient and the roles reverse and All those dynamics have to get worked out. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And also the behind the scenes on the comedy. Everybody just loves when you show up on Beating Cancer Daily. And I just want to really thank you for being part of our universe. I am so grateful to be part of this universe. And anyone who's listening, please know that I'm so happy that 
you might get a little something out of it that means the world to me. And Saren, thank you so, so much for having me back. It's our pleasure. Have a blessed day and I'll see you tomorrow. If you love today's episode, then tell the world. Why? Because Beating Cancer Daily and our membership circle are both a listener and donor-supported experience. So the more people you tell and the more people that join us, the more robust and interesting programs our nonprofit, the Comedy Cures Foundation, can bring to you throughout the year. I really want you to go to ComedyCures.org. And of course, I always want you to make a donation. It's tax deductible to the extent allowed by law. But what's super exciting is not only can you laugh and explore the comedy there, you can look at our membership levels and find the one that's great for you. And if you're feeling a little bit generous, gift one to a chemo brother or sister or to a caregiver that you just want to help them improve the quality of their day. Thanks so much. See you tomorrow. Guess what time it is? It's time for me to read the disclaimer. Beating Cancer Daily and the Membership Circle are not in lieu of medical advice or treatment. They are for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your healthcare team to review your best strategy. Thanks for listening.